chapter 4. Philippians and chapter 4. It's page number 1180 of the Pew Bibles. 1180. Just to say the history and theology form will be next Thursday and not this Thursday, I think, as announced. Of June. Yes. So, Philippians chapter 4 and verses 1 to 5. This morning we're in our series on Shining Like Stars, and our title is Coping with Conflict. Before we begin, let's first pray and ask for God's help to understand His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You are a communicating God. And so we ask, in Your grace, as we come to Your Word this morning, that You would speak to us through it. And may the Holy Spirit help us to apply your word to our hearts. For we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So Philippians chapter 4 and verses 1 to 5. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clements and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Amen. It was immensely amicable. Words you might guess, chosen by a politician. That was how Tony Blair described a meeting he just had with his French counterparts, Jacques Chirac. Now in politics, immensely amicable is a bit like a code word. And it really means we're not getting on. It's true. They were arguing about the European Union budget. Now here's all of what Tony Blair actually said. The meeting I, the meeting I have just had with President Chirac was immensely amicable. But obviously, he continues, there's a sharp disagreement. He's very honest. It is difficult to see these differences being bridged. Back in the first century, a man named Paul wrote a letter to a church in Philippi, an important city in Macedonia. And in that church, two people were not getting on. Two ladies were arguing. But let me say, just in case I get in big trouble, that I could easily have been two men. Amen, ladies? Amen. The names were Yodia and Sintiki. And some have called them Odious and Suntouchi. And I can just imagine Paul phoning Yodia one day and saying, Good morning, Yodia. And how are you doing today? 
Fine, thank you. And how are you and Syntyche getting on? A long pause. Well, it's immensely amicable, actually. To be honest, Paul, we're not getting on that well. In fact, we don't speak to each other anymore. And it gets worse. Whenever we're in the same place, I pretend not to see her. And so, here we find two Christians who belong to the same Christian community, who worship the same one true God, who love the same Lord Jesus Christ, and who have received the same Holy Spirit, but who did not get on. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think that could happen today in church? That two Christians could fall out over an issue and then not speak to each other maybe even for years. Well, it could, couldn't it? And here in this letter, Paul gives us some very practical advice. Advice about coping with conflict in church. But that's not all. He does more than that. He lets us know what it means to be spiritually healthy. This week, the pastoral team was at a conference on growing the church. And we all found it very helpful. But there's an even more basic issue. And it's this. It's whether a church is healthy. Rick Warren, in his book, The Purpose Driven Church, writes about this need to be healthy. And here's what he says. The key issue for churches in the 21st century will be church health, not church growth. And that's what Paul is speaking about here. He highlights three marks of being spiritually healthy. Standing firm in the Lord. Agreeing in the Lord. And rejoicing in the Lord. And so firstly, Paul says, stand firm in the Lord. Verse 1. Now let me start here by telling you about my wife's uncle, David's. Uncle David's. David works in a woodyard. And he is an expert at DIY, whereas I know nothing about DIY. Just a pity he lives in Northern Ireland. But David has built his own house. Before he actually built that house, he had to get one thing right. The foundations. And if he didn't get that right, then everything else would just come tumbling down. And that's Paul's objective here in this chapter. He wants our foundations for living as a healthy Christian to be right. So right at the start, he says, a mark of spiritual health is to stand firm in the Lord. And that means having the right focus. If you look down at verse 1, Paul begins chapter 4 with the word, therefore. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now, when I was younger, I was told, whenever you see the word, therefore, you find out what it's there for. Right? 
Okay, so what is therefore, therefore? Well, this verse is transitional, and it points in two directions. It points backwards to what Paul has just written, but it also points forwards to the chapter ahead. So firstly, it points backwards. If you recall from last week, Paul had warned us about false teachers. He said, beware, beware of those who are opposed to all that the cross of Christ represents. And we get a picture of this in chapter 4, verse 1. The word he uses for stand firm is the word used for a battle scene with the enemy surging down upon them. And so what did Paul say? He said, only imitate those who make much of the cross. Only imitate those who are wholehearted for Jesus. And then in chapter 3, verse 20, if you look down, chapter 3, verse 20, Paul reminds us not only of the cross, but of the return of Christ. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies, so that they will be like his glorious body. So we're pointed backwards to what Paul has just said. Keep focused on Jesus. Keep focused on the cross. Keep focused on the return of Christ. But it almost certainly points forward as well. And here's why. If you read this verse in a very literal way, it would read, Thus stand firm in the Lord. And this word thus often points forward. Let's take the example of John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible. John 3.16 reads literally, For God thus loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son. And the word thus, in John 3.16, it points forward. It points to the supreme evidence that God loved the world. And notice, it's the same here in Philippians 4 verse 1. Thus stand firm. Stand firm in the way I'm about to show you, Paul says. So firstly, in standing firm, it means to have the right focus. And secondly, it means to have love. This morning we heard from Josephine about the work being done in Malawi in Africa. And it was very moving. And it's also a great picture of what it means to have love. And here in this letter, if you look at verse 1, we see the deep love that Paul has for his fellow Christians. You whom I love and long for, Paul writes. And he really wants them to get that. Dear friends, he calls them. And I read that and I thought, Paul really does love them. I am quite slow, but I got that. It's obvious. He really does care about his fellow Christians. And we see this in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 8. We turn back. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 8. And he writes, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Alec Motier writes about this deep affection that Paul had. Here's what he says. To put it just like that, rebukes our lukewarm affection for our fellow Christians. We have a long way to go 
before we are feeling the emotions of Christ towards each other as Paul was. We who so easily dismiss from our reckoning those whom God has accepted and reconciled and who so lightly offend those for whom Christ died. Wow, I read that and I felt rebuked. So let's think about that. How can we show someone that we love them? Well, the early church father, St. Augustine, put it well. And here's what he said. Here's what he says. What does it look like? It has hands to help others, feet to hasten to the poor and needy, eyes to see the misery and want, ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. And maybe for you, that will mean simply taking time to be with someone, encouraging someone going through a difficult time. If they're a student, know when they've got exams. If someone is sick, going to visit them. Giving someone a lift to the airport so they won't have to pay high parking fees and they'll save a small fortune. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, verse 34. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So here's a thought. Think of that person who, to be honest, just does your head in. Who is the complete opposite of you in temperament. And who always seems so skillful at winding you up. How are you supposed to love them? Well, here's a thought. Why not put that person on your prayer list? Pray for them that God would bless them. And it won't be easy. But here's what you'll find. How you feel about that person will change. You'll begin to love them. And that's a mark of being spiritually healthy. Love. We stand firm together in love. Now here we come to a test. Do you like tests? Well, here we find a test to see if we really do love each other. And it's our second mark of being spiritually healthy. Here it is. Do we agree in the Lord? Verses 2 to 3. It's very warm up here. <laughs> I'm sure it's down there as well. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll be heading to the Keswick Convention for our week in the sun. Hoping. And if you ever go to Keswick, you'll see a big sign over the platform, and it reads, All one in Christ Jesus. And it reminds us of our unity in Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here. A mark of spiritual health is unity. However, it's here we now meet Yodia and Sintiki, also known as Odious and Suntachi. So what do they know about Yodia and Sintiki? Well, they were members 
of the church in Philippi, probably deaconesses, like Phoebe in Romans 16 and verse 1. But these two just can't seem to get along. Now, I can be quite a nosy person, and I would like to find out what Yodia and Syntyche were actually arguing about. And wouldn't you? You would. Well, we don't know. Maybe it had some doctrinal overtones. Maybe. But you know, at the heart of it, at the heart of it, I think it was really just a personal matter. But we don't know. And Paul in his wisdom doesn't go on about the issue. He doesn't make it bigger than it is. And we can learn from that, can't we? Sometimes we can blow things up out of all proportion. Isn't that true? It is true. And what starts as being something fairly unimportant and could easily be sorted out gets bigger and bigger and bigger like a big, massive helium balloon because we make it bigger. Let me give you an example. On Thursday last week, there were two red-faced people in a London law firm. Did anyone see that? Somehow, a secretary had accidentally spilt tomato ketchup on a senior associate's trousers. And he got annoyed. And he demanded, by email, four pounds to get them cleaned. And he would like the money that day, please. However, the secretary also got annoyed. And she forwarded that email onto partners and lawyers in this particular law firm, which was then sent all over London. It was. And get this. That night, the law firm was forced to issue a press statement. Would you believe it? Saying it was a matter which clearly got out of hand. It surely did. And that's no doubt what happened with Yodia and Syntyche. An issue just got out of hand. And now, it was a mess. But Paul was very wise. And he believes, despite all the pain, there can still be reconciliation. So what can we learn from Paul here? There are three things to learn. Firstly, confront. Now let me tell you, this takes guts. There was a problem. No doubt about that. And this had to be sorted. So what does Paul do? He appeals to them. He puts his arm around them and he says, For the sake of Christ, stop it. Think of the hurt that you're doing to this church. And if you look at verse 2, you'll see the word plead before each name. And notice what Paul's doing here. It's important. He isn't taking sides. I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Additionally, he mentions them by name, and that's also important. Gordon Fee explains helpfully. Here's what he says. That he names them at all, at all is evidence of friendship. Since one of the marks of enmity in polemical letters is that enemies are left unnamed. 
thus denigrated by anonymity. So firstly, confront. And now secondly, restore. Paul is smart. If you look down at verse 3, look at what it says. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So what does Paul do? He talks to someone called Loyal Yoke Fellow. And this may be someone's proper name, Sizegus. How would you like to be called Sizegus? But Paul says here, go on, help them. Help to restore them. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're the kind of Christian who brings people together in the Lord. And that is marvellous. And now thirdly, encourage. He doesn't just confront them. He commends them. And I think this is great. In verse 3, Paul says, Yodia and Syntyche have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. The ministry of encouragement. Charles Swindle writes in one of his books about the vital importance of encouragement. Listen to what he says. It's quite a challenge. The lack of encouragement is almost an epidemic. To illustrate this point, when did you last encourage someone else? And he continues. I firmly believe that an individual is never more Christ-like than when full of compassion for those who are down, needy, discouraged, or forgotten. How terribly essential is our commitment to encouragement. You know, when I read that, I had to ask myself, do I make a real effort to encourage? Or am I quick to criticise? Quick to find fault? And it's typical of Paul to encourage. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. Before admonishing the church, he writes, I always thank God for you, because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. As Paul is saying here, a mark of true spiritual health is unity. Unity and reconciliation. Now let's stop there. Here's what this does not mean. Okay? It does not mean we agree on absolutely everything. How boring would that be? Agreeing over every minute detail. No. Here's why we can live in unity. It's this. We have a shared vision. If you look at verse 2, we read, I plead with you, dear, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Now the phrase, agree with each other, is an important phrase in Philippians, and it's found ten times in these four chapters. So what does it mean? It means have the same mindset. And we see that in chapter 2 and verse 2, if you turn back. Chapter 2 and verse 2, we read, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. 
And notice what Paul is not asking for here. He's not appealing for unity at the expense of truth. Paul doesn't say, doctrine doesn't matter, just you all love each other and that will be enough. He doesn't say that. So what is he appealing for? It's this. It's a shared vision. And what is this shared vision? It is the gospel. Don Carson comments here. But in every case, whether you can reach agreement on this detail or that, identify what takes absolute priority and begin with that. Focus on what unites you. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Be like-minded. Think the same things. Agree with one another. Work hard and humbly on these central issues. And in most instances, the peripheral matters will take care of themselves. What is our shared vision? It is the gospel. We sometimes sing that song by Edward Joseph Burns. We have a gospel to proclaim. Good news for men in all the earth. The gospel of a saviour's name. We sing his glory, tell his worth. Someone who shared that vision was a man called Andrew Urquhart. Now, Andrew Urquhart was the church secretary of Charlotte Chapel back in the early 1900s. There's a picture of him there. And Charlotte Chapel back then was not like it is now. There was an active membership of around 30 people. In 1901, Andrew Urquhart sent a letter to the Reverend Joseph Kemp telling him of their situation. And he also invited Joseph Kemp to be their pastor. Both men later met. And this is what happened. Joseph Kemp said, If I come, I must have an absolutely free hand. Andrew Urquhart replied that he could have an absolutely free hand on only one condition. This is brilliant. Joseph Kemp asked, what is that condition? Now listen to what Andrew Urquhart said. He replied, that you preach the gospel. That's it. The one condition. In a book about the history of Charlotte Chapel in the early years, the Reverend William White wrote about the influence of this man, Andrew Urquhart. And here's what he said. It has been said that there would have been no Charlotte Chapel as we know it today had it not been for the vision, faith and radiant optimism of this beloved brother. Those immortal words that you preach the gospel. Just as Paul had said, agree with each other, have the same mindset. About what? About our style of worship? About our dress? No. We agree on the gospel. The message that God loves sinners like you and me. And that he sent his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us on a cross. So we could be reconciled with a holy and a gracious God. That's the message we have to proclaim. And that's why we can live in unity. We agree in the Lord. During the week, I was thinking about that. I asked myself the following questions. And you can ask yourself as well. How important do I think evangelism is and the preaching of the gospel today? 
Is that the absolute, non-negotiable of Charlotte Chapel? That we get the gospel out, that we evangelize this city and overseas. The wonderful message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now finally, the time's marching on. The third mark we find here is being spir- and being spiritually healthy is this. We rejoice in the Lord. Verses 4 and 5. When our eyes are focused on Christ, and when we are living for Christ, our lives will be characterized by joy. In verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And we find this theme of joy throughout Paul's letter. If we turn to the first chapter, chapter 1 and verses 4 and 5, just turn back a couple of pages. Paul assured his readers, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Then if we go to the next page, to chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Paul is ready to be poured out with a kind of drink offering. And he writes, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. And in chapter 3, verse 1, we find the same thing is picked up once again. Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And now in the fourth chapter, it returns once more. And you can feel the excitement welling up within Paul. He bursts out, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And he gave us a brilliant example of this irrepressible joy. If you recall in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were arrested and thrown into prison, beaten and bruised. But here's what they did. They began a midnight worship service. And now look where Paul is again. He's back in prison. And what does he say? Hang in there as I am trying to hang on myself. Not a chance. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Question. How could Paul live like that? The answer is, it's because he'd met Jesus. And he knew that a Christian's joy is not based on circumstances. It's found in Jesus. And he looked forward to that day when he would be with Christ forever. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, Rejoice in one thing that never changes, that your name is in the book of life. And that's what Paul writes in verse 5, as we come to a close. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And that means two things. The Lord is near. He is coming back again. And the Lord is near. He is always around us. Paul looked forward to that day when he would be with Christ forever. And he could echo those words of that song. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We are going to see the King. 
And what an assurance that is for us, for those who know Christ. In all the ups and downs of life, we are Christ's forever. So in conclusion, this morning we have looked at what it means to be spiritually healthy. It means to stand firm in the Lord, to keep focused on Jesus, to marvel at the greatness and the glory of the Son of God, to stand together in love. And it means to agree in the Lord, to know that sense of unity among us, to be like Andrew Urquhart and have that unshakable vision for one great non-negotiable, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it means to rejoice in the Lord in all the ups and downs of life. We are Christ's forever. Let's pray.